0: Diane is your average Christian. She grew up in a Christian home. She's been attending church her whole life. But she feels miserable and often far from God despite her regular church attendance. She feels guilty whenever she fails and thinks that God hates her for her failures. Dr. Chris Thurman tells Diane's story in his book, The Lies We Believe*. Dr. Thurman asks Diane a series of questions recounted in the book. Diane, has your Christianity ever been enjoyable or a source of comfort? Her answer, no, never. Diane, why do you think you've never enjoyed your Christianity? Diane responds, would you enjoy it if you always felt like you were trying to measure up and never making it? Dr. Thurman agrees. No, I wouldn't. You know what you are describing is something that a lot of Christians seem to struggle with, and it seems to stem from their view of God. How do you view God? Diane shoots back. I view God as a harsh judge who damns people to hell. Dr. Thurman asks, Where do you think that view came from? She looks back to her childhood. My preacher back home. All he seemed to preach on was hellfire and damnation. I think my image of God comes largely from that. So Dr. Thurman probes deeper. Was grace ever mentioned by your pastor? Diane laughs a bit sardonically. If it was, I can't remember. I just remember being scared. Dr. Thurman asks, Any other pictures pop into mind? Well, yes, she says, of me as a kid getting punished. My father was strict. He yelled and screamed at us a lot. He showed little, if any, compassion. Dr. Thurman looks her in the eye, And do you see God and Christianity the same way? Diane says, Well, yes. Isn't that what Christianity and God are all about? To keep us good on the straight and narrow path? My friends, this view of God and Christianity is a curse. It sees Christianity as a set of laws designed to make us good so that we deserve to go to heaven. When we mess up, God punishes us. We live constantly with guilt because we never feel like we measure up to the performance standards that God has set for us. We always fall short. This view of Christianity brings bondage and misery. It's a legalistic view of Christianity. And such a theology is at the root of many spiritual problems that Christians have today. Now, I do not want you to misunderstand me. Hell is real, and God does judge sin. We dare not preach only half of the Bible, but God also is a God of grace and compassion who has provided a way out from under the curse of the law. We don't have to live with constant guilt because we can't measure up to the rules of the church. The message of Galatians 3, verses 7 to 14, is that Christ releases us from the curse by faith. Salvation cannot be earned by your performance. You and I will never be good enough for God. Salvation comes only by faith in the grace of God. These verses teach a wonderful sequence of truths that will free us from the guilt of our performance mentality as Christians. The first truth is that faith blesses, verses 7 to 9 of Galatians 3. Faith blesses. Paul has just quoted Genesis fifteen six in the previous verse. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Then Paul goes on to make his theological point in verses 7 through 9. Therefore, as a result of what I've just quoted, therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Paul uses Abraham as his prime example because the legalizers who were attacking the Galatians' faith proudly looked to Abraham as their father. The legalizers were telling the Gentile Christians that they needed to become children of Abraham by adoption since they were not children of Abraham by birth. They needed to become Christians the way the Gentiles became Jews, by circumcision, by keeping the law. They needed to be circumcised because this was the way a Gentile convert became a child of Abraham under the law. Paul says that this is absolutely wrong. You do not do something to become a spiritual child of Abraham. You believe someone to become a spiritual child of Abraham. It is faith, not works, that is the key to the spiritual life. Faith blesses us in three ways in verses 7 through 9. Faith blesses us with a relationship, verse 7. God applied righteousness to Abraham solely by faith. The only way to be a spiritual, not ethnic, but spiritual son of Abraham is to come by faith alone. A relationship with God, like Abraham's relationship, comes by faith, not works. God calculates righteousness to be given to us in exchange for trusting him. Faith is the means of possessing a relationship with God. We trust him to make us right with him. My friends, faith is not meritorious. We do not earn righteousness by our faith, which would make faith just another work we do for God. Faith is the opposite of merit. Faith renounces any merit we have and accepts his righteousness as undeserved grace. We get right with God, not because we do right, but because we believe that he did right. That is faith. Now, it's very important to know the chronology of the life of Abraham at this point in Paul's argument. The legalizers would have known that Abraham was not circumcised until Genesis 17 when he was 99 years old. So this was 14 years after he had believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Therefore, faith preceded works for Abraham. And it must be the same for us today. Faith comes before works. Relationship comes before ritual. What God does for us comes before what God demands from us. Any other order is heresy. So faith blesses us with a relationship in verse 7. And faith blesses us with the gospel in verse 8. The scriptures foresaw that God would justify the gentiles by faith one day so God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham in verse 8 Paul quotes from Genesis 12:3 which is the promise God made to Abraham when Abraham was 75 years old God made this promise 24 years before Abraham was circumcised and 430 years before God gave the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. Paul makes this point a few verses later in Galatians 3:17. What I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. The gospel The good news that all the nations of the world would be blessed in Abraham came before the law. The point is that the gospel was intended from the very beginning to include the Gentiles. The Gentiles were not an afterthought in God's mind. Furthermore, the gospel was preached long before the Mosaic law even came into existence. My friends... The gospel of God's grace always comes before the works of law. God's promise comes before our performance. Faith, not law, is what blesses us with the gospel, the good news of God. So faith blesses us with the relationship in verse 7. Faith blesses us with the gospel in verse 8 and faith blesses us with a reward in verse 9. When we believe, we are blessed by God with Abraham, the believer. The legalizers argued that God blessed Abraham because Abraham passed what they called the Ten Tests of Faithfulness, which began with circumcision and ended with the sacrifice of Isaac. They identified ten tests of faithfulness that God made Abraham obey before he blessed him. Because Abraham jumped through God's hoops, God blessed him. No way, Paul says. God did not bless Abraham because he passed God's tests. The blessing came before the tests. God blessed Abraham with his reward because he trusted God's gracious promise. And the same is true for us today. God doesn't bless us because we jump through certain hoops. That would make God's blessing dependent on our works. We share, by faith, in the spiritual blessing of Abraham, the believer. What is that spiritual blessing? God's blessing is none other than Jesus Christ, as Paul will make very clear in the remainder of this chapter. Christ is the fulfillment of the promise in the Abrahamic covenant. God says to Abraham in Genesis 15 1, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your very great reward. I, God, am your very great reward. Who is Abraham's reward? God is. And in a particular, of course, Jesus Christ. Our reward as believers is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We enjoy that reward by grace alone through faith alone. It's not the misery of works righteousness but the beauty of faith righteousness that makes the Christian life a life of joy and freedom. Faith blesses us with a relationship, the gospel, and a very great reward. But the second element in the sequence of truths that will help us live with joy and freedom is that the law curses, verses 10 through 12. Faith blesses, 7 through 9, The law curses 10 through 12. I'm a fan of the Boston Celtics professional basketball team that has a long history of success. There's a great story about Bill Russell, who was one of the greatest players in the history of the game. He led the Celtics to 11 NBA championships, including eight straight championships in the 1960s. Russell was a dominating player who seemed to control the entire game by his presence on the court. One day, a reporter asked him if he ever got nervous. Bill Russell replied, Before every game, I vomit. The reporter was shocked, so he asked him what he did if they played two games on the same day. Russell replied, I vomit twice. I can identify with Russell at least a little bit because I seem to have intestinal problems before I preach. I often had severe headaches the first week of each semester as I prepared to teach my college classes. During my years in the pastorate, I often took Excedrin for my headaches and the day after I retired from the pastorate, I stopped taking Excedrin. No more headaches. Why? Pressure. It is the pressure to perform. It is the pressure to live up to the standards which I have set for myself. There are self, many of them are self-imposed. It is the fear of failure that generates such emotional reactions. It is the fear that I will not be able to live up to my expectations or the expectations of others what they have for me, and that I will let them down somehow, that I will not measure up in what I am doing. We all feel the pressure to perform in life, and such fears are a curse, my friends. The curse of the law is that it generates a performance mentality in us When we apply that same mentality to our spiritual lives, we soon live in the fear that we will never live up to God's standards and we become miserable. Why? Because performance demands perfection. In verse 10, performance demands perfection. Paul writes, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse for it is written cursed is every one who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them let me paraphrase the opening part of this verse paul says any of you who refuse the righteousness that christ provides for you and insist on earning your way to heaven by your performance are under the curse Under the law means under the curse. The curse is the curse of perfection. Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 27 verse 26, which is a very interesting passage. In that chapter, Deuteronomy 27, the people of Israel are gathered in a valley between two mountains to worship God and pledge their commitment to the law. Half of the people stood on Mount Gerizim and the other half stood on Mount Ebal. The Levites would shout out blessings to the people standing on Mount Gerizim, but curses to the people standing on Mount Ebal. The people on each mountain would shout, Amen, in agreement with the law. And in this way, the blessings and the cursings of the law were dramatized for the nation. Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, the verse Paul quotes here, is the last of the set of curses pronounced upon the people under the law. Notice that the curse states that they were obligated to perform all. All. Not merely some, but all of the law. They had to be perfect. The stress of the law was on performance. They had to perform the law. Paul is saying that if you are going to put yourself under the law as your means of gaining God's approval, then you are obligated to perform all of the law. You can't pick and choose from the law. You will live or die by your performance. Now that is pressure. It is the pressure of perfection. Performance demands perfection. Once you decide that God's love for you depends upon your performance, you're going to be miserable. You will always be trying to measure up and never able to do it. So you will live in the bondage of guilt. You will always be striving to earn God's love. That's Diane's problem in the story I told you about earlier. It is my problem, too, whenever I begin to think that my preaching or teaching determines my relationship with God. It is your problem when you think that your Christian performance or your ministry achievements earn his love. Now you have to be perfect to win God's approval, and you never achieve perfection, which leads to a lifetime of guilt. We become very self-centered when we become performance-oriented because we think that what we do earns his approval. We forget that it is God who makes us competent to serve him. The exciting thing is that when we get our eyes off of ourselves and begin to put them on what Christ has done and can do through us and for us, we will then find freedom from the performance curse. That is why I want you to notice that choice determines life in verses 11 and 12. Choice determines life. Paul writes, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Paul is talking about two different ways of living the Christian life in these verses. You can live by faith or live by law. It's your choice. But the consequences are incredible. The way of faith brings joy, while the way of law brings misery. The way of faith liberates, while the way of law imprisons. Faith liberates, in verse 11. You cannot be righteous by the law. Nobody can, because nobody can be perfect. You cannot earn God's approval by your performance. You can only be righteous by faith. We live righteously by faith, Trusting God's grace to supply what we need to do what he wants us to do. The way of faith starts by acknowledging our inability to be perfect. We trust God to save us by his grace. We trust God to produce in us the life he desires from us. The doctrine of our inability, coupled with the doctrine of his ability, is a liberating doctrine. Now we can perform what he wants without the self-imposed pressure of earning his approval by our abilities. We preach, or sing, or teach, or work, trusting him to make us worthy of him. That is the most liberating experience in all of the world. He does in us what he demands from us. So faith liberates. But verse 12, law imprisons. Law imprisons. The way of law produces misery. Because if your spirituality comes by doing, then you will live in the prison of doing, of performance salvation. Perfectionism is a curse. Paul quotes from Leviticus 18, verse 5. This verse has sometimes been understood to teach that, theoretically at least, you could be saved by following the law perfectly. But, since no one can perform the law perfectly, then no one is ever actually saved by the law. The problem with this view is that it contradicts what Paul says later in verse 21. The law was never intended to impart life, even if you could keep it perfectly, which you can't. The Old Testament Israelite in Leviticus 18 could avoid the consequences of sin by performing the law, which included sacrifices to atone for his failures built into the law is the sacrifice. However, he could never have a living relationship with God by merely keeping the law. The law was never a magic formula which imparted life. Even in the Old Testament, The only way to have spiritual life was by faith in God's grace who provided for you his righteousness. So what does Galatians 3.12 mean then? Law and faith are opposite ways of life. If you try to gain God's approval by the law, then you will live by the results of the law law becomes a prison for the soul living by the law means living in the prison of fear and guilt driven to do more and more to please god you have to be perfect and perfectionism leads to misery paul tells us you made your bed now lie in it if you choose the way of law expect to live that way with the consequences of the law which are guilt and fear it's your choice you cannot mix faith and law. It is either or, not both and. They are mutually exclusive ways of spiritual living. Faith liberates, law imprisons. You cannot come to Christ by faith and live for Christ by law. There's a story told about a farmer who had just been married in a little country church. He and his new wife were driving away from the church in his horse-drawn wagon. After they had gone about a mile, the horse stumbled. The farmer pulled over by the side of the road, got out, walked around to the front of the horse, looked the horse in the eye, and said, That's one. A short time later, the horse stumbled again. The farmer followed the same procedure, and said, that's two. They had gone no more than another mile when the horse stumbled again. This time the farmer reached down behind the wagon seat and pulled out his shotgun, climbed down, walked to the front, and shot the horse. The new bride shouted, what did you do that for? All the horse did was stumble. The farmer looked at his new wife and said, that's one. Abusive authority lives by the law. Abuse is legalistic and destructive. There is no room for stumbling under abusive authority. The law condemns us to die. There's no grace in the law. It's all fear. The curse of the law is that we live by its consequences without any wobble room, without any room for stumbling. It's the curse of performance salvation. As Stephen Brown once said, if I couldn't be good enough to get into the kingdom before I was a Christian, what in the world makes me think that I can be good enough to stay there? That is why, my friends, we need the message of the next two verses in Galatians where Paul tells us that Christ releases, verses 13 and 14. If faith blesses and the law curses, then it is Jesus Christ who releases, and it is Jesus Christ alone who can release us from that curse. Listen to Paul's words. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Jesus purchased us out of the slave market where we were cursed to die by the law. No wobble room. No excuses. Well, how did Jesus purchase us? He purchased us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. He released us from the curse by being cursed in our place. Verse 13 became a very important verse in Christian apologetics in the first century. The Jews would certainly agree with what Paul was saying here about a curse, Because the Jews often made a point of the fact that Jesus could not be the Messiah because he had been cursed by God. And they based this on the very passage that Paul quotes here, Deuteronomy 21, 23. The Jews believed that anyone who hung on a tree was cursed by God because such prolonged exposure was breaking the law. The Hebrew name, Jesus, was spelled Yeshua, meaning Savior or Salvation. The Jews often changed the name to make fun of Christians. They changed the spelling from Yeshua to Yeshu. It was an acronym for May His Name Be Forever Cursed. Well, Paul turns the argument around. Yes, of course, Jesus had been cursed but not for his own sins. God cursed him for our sins, which is why Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was undergoing the wrath of God, the curse of the law for our sins. Why did Christ redeem us? He redeemed us for two purposes in verse 14. Christ redeemed us so that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That blessing is Jesus Christ and salvation through him alone. The wall between Jew and Gentile has been broken down and now salvation is made available to the whole world by the redemption of Jesus Christ. Second, Christ redeemed us so that the promise of the Spirit might come through faith. We receive the promise of the Spirit by trusting Christ. The promise of the Spirit is going to be very important because Paul is going to show us how the Spirit is the power which enables us to live the Christian life. Without the Spirit, we can't live the Christian life. And we receive the Spirit... Through Christ. My friends, Christ releases us from the prison of law and performance and trying to be good enough for God. He does that when we put our faith in him and what he has done for salvation. Have you trusted Jesus for your salvation? Or... Are you still trying to buy your way into heaven by your own good works? Trust him today and enjoy the freedom of life in Christ. You can be free by God's grace. Christ releases us from the curse of the law by faith in him. Steve Green published a song in 1988 That has some powerful words. It is entitled, Come and See. And I think it expresses the message of this passage better than I can. To all who are tortured and ravaged by sin, the frail and the wounded about to give in, there's news of release and captivity's end. We've been set free. Come and see. O sleeper, awake. Come out of the night, throw open the door, and step into the light. For sin is undone, and the wrong is made right. We've been set free. Come and see. I, too, lived in slavery. Unmercifully bound, battered, and broken, I finally knelt down. And there, in obedience, freedom was found. I've been set free. And now through the dungeons of darkness and night I run in the freedom of liberty's light and shout to the captives, O prisoners take flight, we've been set free, come and see. Come and see, the power of sin has been broken, the gates of your prisons stand open, come and see. Arise, believe, for the power at work both to rescue and save is the power that raised Jesus Christ from the grave. We've been set free, come and see.